Um, God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you have uh, brought us back here. Um, appreciate that you have uh, given us your word to help us live the Christian life. And we pray that as we study it tonight, we will um, align our lives to your word and what you have called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're working through the Ten Commandments. That's how we're structuring this this class that we're calling Christian Life and Ethics. Um, once again, we, we don't do uh, study of the Mosaic Law in a way that is meant to save us. We don't get saved through our obedience to the law. Um, but because we are saved by Jesus, we, we want to align our lives to what he calls us to. And the Ten, the ten Commandments really serve as a, as a blueprint or a, a framework is probably better um, for how to live a life that honors God and, and f- helps human beings flourish the best. Uh, you can't really argue that by doing that, which the Ten Commandments call us to do, would, would really mean the best for human life and human existence. We don't, we don't do it as, as consistently as we should, but um, as we grow in Christ, the, the more and more we want to align ourselves to his ideals through his power, of course, through his spirit. But... Uh, tonight, we're going to work through um, the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder. So we're talking about uh, the value of human life and protecting human life and how God calls us uh, to live um, with, with one another in that regard. And so Exodus twenty thirteen is the, where the Ten Commandments is uh, listed out for us. Um, and it's simply, you shall not murder. This is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That seems pretty clear on the surface. Um, but it does get a little bit more complicated than just what it sounds like on the surface. Um, the Hebrew word here for, and we're just going to do some background like we always do on kind of the, the, the text itself. And then we'll talk about some of the implications. Uh, but the Hebrew word for murder here uh, refers to the unlawful killing of human life in a criminal sense. But it also speaks of causing human death through carelessness or negligence. So the word, the Hebrew word, the original word here that we translate as murder, actually has a broader meaning than what we would think of as murder. Uh, Murder, of course, in our our understanding of it, would be the first half of this, that we're causing human death through some kind of an unlawful action or violence uh, of taking life. And of course, that's the clear meaning, at least part of the meaning of uh, this command is not to kill one another out of uh, revenge or hatred or any of those things in a, and break the law in the process. Um, but in the Hebrew, it has a broader implication, which is we can be liable of breaking this command if we cause the death of another person um, through being careless or negligent or, or just not you know, fulfilling our responsibilities to them. So uh, that's, that's kind of the intention of the word. This word also uh, is not used in the Hebrew Bible uh, to refer to a couple of other things. It doesn't refer to judicial execution. So if somebody uh, is put to death under the death penalty, this, does not, this is not the same word that is used to talk about that. And it's not used in the context of war. So the sixth commandment, uh, is often translated, or it was translated by the King James um, as you shall not kill. And then the modern translations put in the word you shall not murder, uh, because the you shall not kill implies that there's no context in which human life 
can be taken by another human being. And that's really not actually the teaching of the Bible. This is talking about a specific way and motivation ultimately behind why we take human life. So this isn't talking about execution from the from the state or the government. Uh, it's not talking about war. And so uh, we need to recognize that. It's not just generically you shall not kill in all circumstances in every situation, but that you uh, should not kill uh, out of hatred in your heart that leads to, to murder as we understand it. So that's important. And then Basically, what I want to do tonight is I want to start with a theological framework for why this command is here. Uh, Why does God give us the commandment, you shall not murder, Uh, beyond the fact that uh, to do so and to continue just going around killing everybody would be terrible, right? And we we don't want to live in a world like that. Uh, There actually is a a deeper framework for this, and it it flows out of uh, first the nature and character of God, and then the nature of mankind as he made us. And so to, to start with, I, I'll point out how John Frame, uh, who is one of the guys that writes the, an ethics book that we're using for this, um, he, he explains that the theological background for this commandment is that God is the Lord of life. Uh, life is symbolized in the book of Genesis as the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And God's whole fullness uh, with man is to give life both physically and spiritually. We, we see in Jesus' own teaching in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And of course, he's talking about spiritual life and eternity with him. But uh, that idea of having an abundant life uh, is God's uh, good intention for humanity. So the first part of the framework for this command is that God created life. He's the author of life. Uh, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living because he's created human beings to live on eternally uh, through our souls and ultimately our bodies being reunited at the resurrection. But the second half of this is um, what, what is the nature of mankind? And this comes to us uh, from the concept imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. Uh, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so God creates mankind. Men and women are equally made in the image of God. And they represent God. That's what it means um, to be in his image. We reflect him. We We'd show the rest of creation and one another something of what God is like. And so God creates humanity in his own image, which is uh, going to become a, a crucial point as we talk about uh, this idea of, of killing and why we, why we don't murder one another. Is It ultimately does stem from this, that we are made in God's image. So, that the, so the, the fact that God is the Lord of all of life, and that would include not just human life, but he's the Lord of plants, fish, animals, anything that he has made that is alive. And as you read Genesis 1, he's creating all of these things that are alive. <clears throat> he intends for his world to have life. But while those things like plants and animals and, and fish should, should have uh, respect from human beings, 
They are not the same as human beings. There is a distinction, there's a difference between mankind and, his, and the rest of his creation. So we should respect the created world, but also use the created world to better life for us. And so um, I think that's, that's one of the crucial things is that we can, we can respect these things uh, and by that, we don't, we don't demolish them. We don't destroy them needlessly. Uh, but if we need to utilize the created world, we should, right? So a, a tree would be a great example. Uh, we, we should want the trees to exist because we need them to breathe clean air. Um, but we also need trees to build houses and uh, to heat homes and, and to do lots of other things. And so there's, it's not wrong to cut down a tree or many trees even if we're doing it responsibly. Uh, but that is different than killing another person, right? It's inherently different to cut down a tree than it is to cut down a person uh, because we're not made, we're made in the image of God. The tree is not. <clears throat> Even though the tree may have value as a tree, it's not a human being. So there's a distinction there. And so that's where the image of God comes in is that the reason we value humanity uniquely above the rest of creation is that we are made in his image, and we have dignity because of that. Okay, so that's the framework. And I think that that kind of gets us to where we, where we can launch into some of these ethical discussions. Um, so tonight, uh, what I want to do first is just start by, by kind of walking through the forms of um, human killing or death that may be, may be acceptable in proper context. And then I want to talk about the forms that would clearly fall under the, the murder prohibition and what that and what are the differences between these things. So, uh, again, like I said, the word for murder in this passage does not refer to capital punishment or to war. Um, and so we'll look at each of those and we'll look at one other one other thing as well in, and talk about what the Bible says on these issues and then get into some of the issues of what clearly crosses that line. So let's start with capital punishment. Um, this is, of course, um, what we would call the death penalty or uh, criminal execution. Um, and the question is, is or should governments take the lives of people who are convicted of capital crimes, like premeditated murder, or you could add treason or terrorism or any other number of violent crimes? Um, th- it, the question is, should governments have the ability to do this? And, and we can definitely uh, argue one way or the other, but I, I think while it's impossible for us to work through every possible crime that could fall under this, um, what I really just want to do is talk about, does the Bible, does God's word give uh, human agencies, human governments, the, the ability to bring out capital punishment at all? And I think the answer is yes um, to that. And, and it's really grounded in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 5 and 6. So Genesis 9 is very early on in the book. It's long before Moses comes onto the scene. It's actually this, these verses come right after the flood. And so Noah is uh, brought uh, out of the ark and he's given some instructions. And what he says is this, uh, what God tells him is this, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man 
in his own image. So this, uh, I think it's important for us to recognize that this command or this calling comes before the law is given through Moses. So it doesn't fall under the category of for Israel at that time, like many of the other Old Testament laws. And, and I think we should just kind of unpack what this is saying to us. Uh, so the word sheds in this is um, a Hebrew word which means to pour out in large amount, causing death. So to shed someone's blood is to have a deliberate, violent, uh, and unjustified taking of human life. So what we're talking about is murder here, like the, the act of murdering someone um, it, with that intention of, of doing violent uh, action towards them. So this commandment from God says that when someone murders another person, the murderer himself or herself should be put to death. This execution of a murderer uh, was not going to be carried out directly by God, but he actually says, by man shall his blood be shed. So he's giving human agency to uh, human beings or agency to human beings to do this work. Uh, Yet this was not seen as human vengeance. It wasn't meant to be carried out by any, any old individual, but it was meant to be carried out as a, uh, as a response and a reckoning or, or justice. So it's kind of rooted in that. That's what this reckoning idea is, is that it's not just anybody is going to be able to kill anybody else for this, but that there's, there's a judicial process that the, ultimately the governments of the world, which weren't really established quite yet in Genesis 9, uh, would, would bring this about. And then there's a reason for this. The command is given for a purpose. Uh, it says... Uh, really, it's about the value of human life. For God made man in his own image. So the reason why governments um, are, are permitted to bring about this kind of capital punishment for, at the very least, the crime of murder is because there's an inherent dignity and value in the person that was killed. And so to be, in, to be made in the image of God is the highest privilege that there is in creation. Human beings are the only ones who share in it, and, and it is God, uh, God's image, which means that we're more like God than anything else on earth. So when somebody is murdered, there's, there's a, a killing of, of the only creatures on the planet that represent God in a direct way as human beings do. So that's the, that's the logical thought behind this idea that if you kill a person who's made in the image of God, you forfeit your life, and you are brought to justice through, I, I, through human governments, ultimately, as, as things move along. Um, and I've already mentioned this, that the passage is not uh, attached to Israel. It's not a part of the Mosaic law, which tells us that this is something for all time and for all people. Uh, I think at the end of the day, I, I do think that this is giving human government the authority to carry out capital punishment. Um, and, I, and I think that that's foundational to all authority of all governments on the earth. And we talked about this a lot last week. We talked about human, human government and authority. And so Romans 13, just real quickly again, we see that God establishes uh, the government as, an, as a servant of God to be an avenger of those who carry out, um, and, and those who carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So it is the role of government to do this, not the role of the individual. Um, 
We saw this last week too. Romans 12, uh, the Bible is clear that we shouldn't avenge ourselves. That's why God's given us governments to do the work on, on our behalf. Um, and so our calling as Christians, as individual Christians, when we're wronged, is to forgive, seek healing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the person who committed terrible crimes should be absolved of responsibility or punishment. Uh, so I think that this is one of these things that the commandment itself that we're looking at does not uh, relate to. It doesn't go back to this issue of capital punishment. And so I think that there's a place for this in civil government. I think it actually is a responsibility uh, of civil government to do this. Now, whether or not other crimes besides murder should be included in this, I think is a question for every government and every uh, group of people who are being represented by that government to make through the political process. Um, but obviously we live in, in a time where that's just not really the case. Wisconsin as a state doesn't have the, have the capital punishment in effect. Many states have outlawed it. Some states have continued to, to use the death penalty, but it's always controversial. Um, I don't really understand that personally. It just seems kind of crazy to me. It, um, I do think there's a place where governments need to be slow, uh, perhaps, to to bring this out. There have been examples of people who have been uh, convicted wrongly and then later DNA evidence or some other evidence exonerates them. So I think there's probably wisdom in saying, okay, you've been been convicted by a jury of your peers. We'll give you a period of time uh, to appeal that. And, And if you're truly innocent, Hopefully there will be time for that evidence to come out. I'm not saying we have to bring people back into the stocks or, or do anything uh, crazy, but I think there is, there is something that um, governments have the role to protect wrongdoers. And what we've moved towards as a society and Western society in general is we're, we seem more concerned about the criminal than the victims. And, and that's, um, that's not good. <laughs> we should be concerned about the victims primarily. And, and then uh, for, for lesser crimes, for less, lesser uh, crimes, then, of course, we should be uh, seeing the, the, the judicial system hopefully bring healing to those people and give them a new, new opportunity to live uh, once they've served their time. But for capital crimes, particularly for murder or for other violent acts against other human beings, uh, I think we need to, be, we need to have wisdom here and, and actually say, well, maybe we should care more about the victim than than the criminal, but what do I know? Okay, uh, so that's, that's where we're at. I think the Bible, the Bible at least, does not um, prohibit capital punishment. Now, our, our government doesn't seem to want to embrace that, and that's, that is what it is. So um, secondly, let's talk, let's talk through this other form of, of death or killing that may occur, and it's through war. Um, this is a big one. This is a big topic, so we'll, we'll have to kind of fly through pretty quickly. But uh, war, on the front end here, I just want to say uh, nobody should be pro-war. Right? <laughs> like, we don't want war. Nobody should want war. Uh, and it inevitably brings really bad things um, to both sides of a conflict. Um, it's something that we should long uh, for um, for it to not happen, and we should pray for peace. All those things are true, um, but uh, and, I, and it's actually one of the most difficult issues in ethics as you study ethics, because war is complicated in that 
on one hand, it can be something that we use to protect human life, right? To bring, um, to bring protection to a nation. And that's one of the crucial roles of government is to protect its citizens. Um, but of course, by the nature of war, it also leads to the, to the death of human life. And so it's a complicated subject being that uh, it can kind of fit into both of these, the role to protect human life and also the role to take human life. And so I, I think I came across a quote from a guy named Charles Hodge, who was um, a theologian in the 1800s. And I thought, I thought his, I'm going to share the quote here in just a second, but I think he just threads the needle really well here uh, for, for the Christian perspective on this. He says, um, it is conceded that war is one of the most dreadful evils that can be inflicted on a people that it involves the destruction of property and life, that it demoralizes both the victors and the vanquished, that it visits thousands of non-combatants with all the miseries of poverty, widowhood, and orphanage, and that it tends to arrest the progress of society and everything that is good and desirable. It's also conceded that the vast majority of the wars which have, been, that which have desolated the world have been unjustifiable in the sight of God and man. Nevertheless, it does not follow from this that war in all cases is to be condemned. So you can see where he's going with this. Is on one hand, war is a terrible thing. It, it's, it's something we, we want to avoid at all costs. It, it, it inevitably leads to the destruction of civilizations and people and widows, women, and uh, orphans, children. And of course, it's, all, it's a horrendous thing. But just because there's a lot of bad attached to war doesn't mean that it's wrong or immoral in every case, even though he acknowledges that most of the wars that have been waged in the world have not been justified. And I actually agree with that. I think he's right about that. Um, I think there are probably exceptions, of course, but that's why he's not saying all wars. He's saying the vast majority of wars uh, were not justifiable. So I, I think that that's probably where I would land is in agreement with him that War is something we should, we should seek to avoid at all cost. We should not be longing for it, of course. Um, but if it's necessary, it's necessary. Um, governments that have the uh, power to use the sword, to use uh, Romans 13 language, to protect and defend its citizens. But I think for, the que- for tonight, the question we need to wrestle with is how can we know if a war is a just war or a right war? Um, so by just, we, we mean like correct or uh, right in that sense. So how do we know that? Um, obviously, as individual citizens, uh, we don't have a whole lot of control in this because we're not the ones that get to decide these things. But I do think there's, there's something to consider, and it's, it's called the just war ethic or sometimes called the just war theory. And this has been developed over time. And it's brought about basically a set of criteria that can be used to decide if going to war is justifiable in a specific situation. And so I, there's 10. Uh, there's 10. You, we'll just rattle them off pretty quickly for the sake of time. But um, I think these 10 things are something to think about. Uh, so this is just war theory. Okay, This is the theory that have been developed by ethicists for over the course of time. Uh, number one. Just cause, meaning that all aggression is condemned 
only defensive war is legitimate. So that's, that's the first criteria for a just war, is that a war is not an act of aggression, it is an act of defense. And uh, of course we can you know, jump through you know, semantic hoops all day on this stuff, but, but that's, that's the first thing that the just war theory would suggest. The second is just intention, uh, meaning that the only legitimate intention for war is to secure peace for all involved. Revenge, conquest, economic gain, or ideological supremacy are not uh, acceptable or justifiable reasons for war. So the, the idea of just intention is that the point of going to war is to get to peace, not to just demolish a society or steal land or any of those things. Number three is last resort. So war may be entered into uh, when all negotiations and compromises have been tried and failed. Uh, so we should be slow to go to war is the idea, that we, that we don't just jump immediately to war, um, but that we actually try diplomacy first and try to work through the, the issues. Now that, of course, isn't always going to be able to happen, right? So there's a last resort. Uh, number four would be a formal declaration. Um, since the use of military force is the prerogative of governments and not individual people, the, a state of war must be officially declared by the highest authorities. And of course, every government's going to have a different process for this. Uh, in the United States, we have a constitution, and that constitution says that an act of war must be declared by Congress. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about whether that's actually happening or not, but that's what the Constitution requires. And the reason the rationale behind that is because the people's representatives should be the ones that are, uh, through, through feedback from their constituents, should be deciding if this war is uh, needing to be fought since American citizens will be going to war um, as those wars are declared. Uh, number five of just war theory would be limited objectives. So if the purpose of, of, uh, of a war is ultimately peace, if that's the intention, is to get to peace, even if that has to go through war, uh, then unconditional surrender or the destruction of a nation's economy or political institutions is an unwarranted objective. So meaning total decimation of a people is not a just war. We need to have limited objectives. The, if the objective is to get to peace, we're only going to do the things that, that get us to that objective, not just completely decimate these people. Uh, number six is proportionate means, meaning that the weaponry and the force used should be limited to what is needed to repeal the aggression and deter further attacks. So that's to say to secure a just peace, right? If that's the goal, to get to a just peace for everybody, the, the means of getting there needs to be proportionate to what's actually happening to win the war. So total or unlimited war is ruled out. Um, you know, again, we're, we're not going to just completely destroy a people to, to do so, right? We're going to be proportionate. We're going to limit ourselves on what kind of weapons we use. Number seven is non-combative immunity. So war is an official act of government, or it should be. 
And so only those who are officially agents of the government should fight, meaning the soldiers, sailors, right? Those, the people who are actually employed uh, for that purpose. Uh, individuals who are not actively contributing to the conflict, like POWs, casualties, or um, civilian non-participants, should be immune from attack. So just war theory says that uh, those who are not in a combative role shouldn't be targeted. So we shouldn't be bombing hospitals. We shouldn't be bombing schools. We shouldn't be bombing neighborhoods. Um, That's what a just war is supposed to look like, right? So where the battlefield is the battlefield, the civilians are the civilians, and we, we need to... Uh, keep that in mind. That's that's where the just war theory is taking us. Number eight is comparative justice, meaning that war should not be waged unless the evils that are fought in that war are grave enough to justify killing. So in other words, is the justice that's going to come through this war actually uh, like equal to the violence that's going to come through this war? Are the things that are being done by this aggressing, aggress- aggressive power uh, actually warranting this kind of response. And then two more here. Uh, Number nine is probable success. So there must be a reasonable likelihood that the war will achieve its aims, meaning that we can get to peace um, and that that there's actually probable reason to believe that we'll get there. And then number 10 is good faith, which means is there a genuine desire for restoration of peace and eventually living in harmony with the attacking nation. Um, those, those 10 things uh, are kind of a culmination of what ethicists um, over time have developed as a just war theory. Uh, now, here's the problem with that. Those are all good things, right? I think they all sound reasonable. But the problem with just war theory is that there's almost never going to be a consensus on that, right? You're... You're going to be looking at the facts. You're going to be looking at the situation. And a representative body like the U.S. Congress, for example, uh, who has to vote on this decision whether we go to war, um, they're all going to be, you know, all hundreds of them are, are going to be having differences of opinion on what defines a just war, what doesn't. Um, is, is this, um, you know, and so it's just going to become a very, very difficult thing to get consensus on. Um, I, and I agree. I understand that. I think, um, but I do think that the, the just war theory is at least a framework to make us stop and think, hmm, do we actually need to do this? Do, is this something that is actually necessary? Um, I, don't, I don't know that we have um, a lot of thoughtful people in government right now, um, like in this regard. Uh, and I and I think and I know that the Congress has basically punted their responsibilities to the executive branch to say, hey, you know, things happen kind of quick, so I guess we're just going to let the president and his cabinet decide everything, and that's not good. Like that's that's not good. And I, I think that that's led to and not just this president, not just the last president, but for a long time, uh, we've just had kind of the the presidential office has basically been the the top of the food chain in this and are gone and have made decisions to bomb countries, um, whether or not that was right or not. Right. And so I, I think we just need to recognize that we, we need to be uh, slow to war. If, and again, this isn't a, this is definitely not me trying to 
suggest that, that individual soldiers and those serving in the military are not doing honorable things. They, they are. They, are really, they really are. Um, and they're, they're serving their country. But I think all the more so are governing leaders who are responsible for these men and women who are serving in the armed forces. They have an obligation uh, to, to choose the battles correctly so that we're not sending people into uh, a war that isn't winnable or isn't uh, just. Um, we, we need to actually be thoughtful about this. Now, ultimately, there's not a lot you and I can do about this, um, but I guess you can call your congressman when the next war comes roaring around, and it's going to be, be soon, probably, um, with, with this stuff in uh, Russia and Ukraine. So... Um, how much should the U.S. get involved in this war? Like, that's beyond my pay, pay grade, obviously, but um, I, I think we need to be thoughtful about what this means. So I think the ultimate strategy that the U.S. has tried to take and I think is good is that peace through strength is kind of the policy. So have a strong military and then deter people from uh, attacking us through, because they know that our military is strong. I think that's a good approach. Uh, it obviously doesn't handle everything though. So again, complicated stuff, but the war issue uh, doesn't fall under the, ten, the, the sixth commandment um, because it's, it's a different category than murder. And that's kind of where I'm trying to go with that. One more let to talk through quickly before we get into some of the clear uh, violations of the, the commandment here is self-defense. Uh, this is another topic that comes up when, it, when we talk about life and protecting life and valuing human life, and that's our own self-defense. Um, so the question of war has to do with kind of the national level of protecting the citizens of that country. Um, but there's also the possibility of physical attack on the individual level, the personal level. And so this is going to raise a bunch of questions about whether it's appropriate for Christians to uh, engage in self-defense, to what degree should we engage in self-defense, um, should we be completely pacifistic and just let things happen to us, should we engage in physical uh, you know, self-defense but not with weapons, are weapons appropriate, like all of these kinds of questions. But let me, uh, let's unpack the, the basic biblical teaching on this. Uh, the, first, the first thing we have to see is that Jesus did not prohibit self-defense. And sometimes people think he did because he, he says this in Matthew 5, 8, 8, uh, 38 and 39, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And so if, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, then you should just turn the other, the other side of your face and let him hit that side too. And some people have interpreted this as Jesus is saying, you can never defend yourself. You're just, you're just supposed to let, let it happen. But I don't think that Jesus is prohibiting self-defense here. I, I think what he's doing is he's um, prohibiting individuals from taking personal vengeance uh, simply just to get even with another person. And, and this kind of gets into a little bit of, uh, you know, technical stuff, but, uh, the Greek word or the Greek verb that's used for slaps um, refers to a specific kind of hit. Um, it's a sharp slap given an insult. So like a right-handed person 
would backhand somebody in the right, on the right side of the face. And so this wasn't uh, a direct attack to harm or murder you. It was to insult you, to humiliate you. And so I think that what Jesus is making the point here is that um, if somebody insults us, we, we shouldn't just retaliate and insult them back. We, we should be able to, to take it and go, okay, that person is wrong, uh, but, but I don't have to take personal vengeance out on them. I don't think that the idea of protecting yourself from a violent physical attack is in view. I don't, I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. Um, John Piper uh, talked a little bit about this and as he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, the section of Scripture where Jesus says this. And he's just kind of broadly speaking about the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Piper says. He says, The commands uh, are not absolute prescriptions with no exceptions, but are rather pointed, concrete illustrations of how enemy love may and should often look in the life of a disciple. That these illustrations are not always the way enemy love acts is clear from Jesus' own behavior. Uh, he, talks, he goes on to talk about Jesus cleansing the temple by making a whip and turning tables over. Uh, Jesus had kind of a violent response to the... Um, now he didn't physically harm any, any people in that, but he, he did you know, upset a lot of things. So Piper's just kind of talking about that. But then he says, and from the nature of love itself as that which aims at the best life for the beloved. And so Piper's point here is that the commands of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are illustrations. They're, they're meant to show us, um, give us examples of how to love our enemies. But they're not direct, like, this is a, a specific narrow thing that you have to do in every situation. Because if that was the case, well, then anytime we'd only have to obey what Jesus says if we're actually slapped in the face. Um, and most of the time, we're not going to be slapped in the face by, by someone who's trying to insult us. But we will be insulted, right, at, at verbally or in other ways. And so the, the implication is, is how do we respond in love to that situation? He's not making a point about self-defense. Um, then moving on, there, there are other passages in the scriptures that encourage uh, self-defense, at least in the form of escaping from danger. So uh, we see this a number of times in the Bible, but... Um, one example is when King, King Saul throws the spear at David. Uh, David dodges the spear and then runs away. And that's from 1 Samuel 19. But the Apostle Paul also talks in 2 Corinthians about being lowered out of the city walls, uh, from up above the city walls, through, in a basket down to earth so that he could run away from the people trying to kill him. Jesus, on numerous occasions, but in Luke 4, 29-30, uh, we're told that he was um, being basically trying to be killed by the crowds and he escapes. He does this a few different times. One of the times is when he's, um, he's in Nazareth and they're going to try to throw him off a cliff and he gets away. He doesn't let them throw him off a cliff, right? So that, there, there is plenty of uh, biblical evidence that escaping danger is a perfectly appropriate response. Um, there's also Old Testament passages on self-defense against physical attacks. Um, so the law of Moses prohibits murder, as we have seen already, right, in the Ten Commandments. But they did not prohibit striking or even killing a person who breaks into your house in the middle of the night 
in darkness. Uh, so there was uh, evidently uh, there was the you know Moses knew there would be the possibility that someone would break into your home in the middle of the night. They had no electricity, right? They had no way of seeing what was happening, and so if someone's doing this, uh, there's no liability on your part if you strike them or if even if you kill them uh, while they're in your home. They're not going to be held uh, guilty for that because there was risk to your life and you couldn't see what was happening. You didn't know what was going on. It was in the darkness. So if, if you're in the dark, uh, the homeowner wouldn't know whether his life was in danger or not, right? Because it's the middle of the night. But that same law or right around that same law in Exodus 22 does talk about if this same thing happens in the daytime, uh, you're not to engage in uh, killing that person uh, as, as much as you're able to, but because it's the daytime, people are going to be able to see him. He'll be brought to justice. These were small towns. People could, people knew everybody, right? So there was a, there was a point in which if somebody broke into your house in the daytime, threatened you, if you could get yourself out of that situation, uh, you shouldn't just slaughter the person, right? Because, because they can be brought to justice other way, in other ways. Um, additionally, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, um, who leads the people to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, had every person working on the wall. Uh, it was given a trowel uh, and a sword to defend against their enemies. So um, that they had you know, the trowel in one hand, they had the weapon in the other, they were protecting themselves from, from harm. And then we see Jesus teaching his disciples about having a sword for, for self-defense. Uh, near the end of his life, Jesus seems to encourage his disciples to keep swords for that purpose. Um, he said to them, but now uh, let, let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword Sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So um, that's kind of a, uh, an obscure passage, I'll, I'll be honest. But uh, there seems to be at least uh, an indication that Jesus is okay with his disciples having uh, swords for self-defense, and we and so even if that's, but even if this, like this is a debatable passage, but people are kind of like that's not what he means. That's okay, but we can by implication assume that Jesus was at least not prohibiting his disciples from having a sword. We know Peter carried a sword; um, those two swords that were shown up, well, probably one of them was Peter's. Um, we know Peter used his sword against the men trying to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, cuts a guy's ear off, which means he was going for the kill shot but missed and uh, hit his ear instead of his head. And um, Jesus, of course, heals the man and tells Peter to put his sword away. This isn't, of course, that was meant because Peter was getting in the way of Jesus going to the cross and Jesus wasn't going to do that. But but evidently, Peter had this sword. Like he just, he had it. And I, and I can't really believe for a second that Jesus didn't know he didn't, ha- that he had this sword. Um, so, he, so even if he didn't command his disciples to carry weapons, he didn't seem to prohibit it either. So I think, while that's a little bit of an argument from silence, we, I, I, think we're, I think we're safe to say that Jesus isn't demanding his disciples not carry weapons for self-defense. So the question for us is, should we uh, carry weapons for self-defense? 
uh, the, ultimately, this comes down to a personal decision for every individual in your situation. Um, some Christians may live in areas where they think the need for a weapon is so small uh, that, it's, that it's outweighed by the negative considerations of having you know, a gun in their house, for example, where a child could get to it or something. So some Christians will be like, ah, I just don't, don't think I need it, and that's okay. Uh, others may live in areas where they think it's uh, a possibility that there's going to be a violent attack on them or their families, and so they want to have a weapon to protect themselves and their family. And that may be a wise decision for some. I think everybody um, probably agrees, I should agree, that we, if we own a gun, we should be wise with it. We should know how to use it. Um, we shouldn't just let, have it laying around where someone who doesn't know how to use it can have access to it, you know, just have general gun safety things in our lives. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's a prohibition against a Christian owning weapons for protection. I don't think there's a command that we have to. Uh, I think it's, a, it's an individual level decision. Um, I don't think you're wrong either way. In our case, like where I live, you know, the, the sheriff are not going to get to my house for half an hour. And so, yeah, it's probably good that I have a weapon in case something happens in the very small chance that it ever will. And I hope it never does, of course. Um, for, so for those of us who live out in the rural areas and, and out of the city, maybe smart for us to have a way to protect ourselves, um, given that we're not next door to a police, police station. Um, but for those who are nearby police stations, maybe it's not as necessary. That's a personal decision for you guys. So there you go. There's that. Um, any questions about those things? So those are the three kind of categories where, uh, Killing another human being may be permissible in certain situations and in certain contexts. War, capital punishment for those who are murderers, and then possibly self-defense. But any thoughts on that before we move into the kind of the the clear, obvious violations of this? No? Okay. Well, that's all right. Good deal. All right. So let's talk about some application to the sixth commandment. And this is where things are going to start to get, um, yeah, we're going to talk about some, some interesting things tonight, I think. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is, is one um, that's a really important topic, and that is uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, we're talking about ways in which the sixth commandment is being or can be broken in our context. Um, I think everyone agrees and should understand that the surface level of the commandment is you shall not murder. I don't think I need to explain what, you know, how, what that means. Right? You know what murder means. You know we shouldn't act this out. But what are the ways in which we see people breaking this command, um, in, in, at least in their own minds, in justifiable ways? Um, and the first one is, is clearly abortion in, in the Western world in particular. Um, th- this is something we, we need to talk about. And it's, um, it's a big issue. It's a big problem. Uh, millions and millions of uh, preborn and unborn children have have died uh, in the last fifty years since Roe v. Wade, and many died before that as well. Um, but abortion is simply this: an action that intentionally causes the death and removal from the womb of a preborn child. So, abortion is um, that action that intentionally causes the death and removal from the womb of a preborn child. 
So by far the most powerful arguments against abortion uh, is the reality that the, the preborn child is a unique person. And this is something that, that the Supreme Court in the Roe v. Wade and other, uh, other decisions over the years really couldn't, didn't feel like they could land on. They couldn't really, for whatever reason, decide that the, the baby inside the mother's womb was a distinct, unique person. Uh, but that's just not what the Bible says. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the court says. It doesn't matter what our, our politicians say. It matters what the Bible says. And the Bible is extremely clear on this. Um, children in the womb should be thought of and protected just as any other person is protected from the moment of their conception. I, I gave you a whole bunch of passages there that indicate personhood of uh, babies in the womb. Luke 1, 41 to 44 Psalm 51, 5, Psalm 139, 13, Genesis 25, 22 and 23, Exodus 21, 22 to 25. And there are many others. We could go to um, <clears throat> the passage where, uh, I, well, actually, that might be in Luke. Yeah, that is Luke, where John the Baptist in the womb leaps for joy when Jesus in the womb of Mary comes and visits him. Um, there are many, many examples of this. So the conclusion from all these passages in the Bible is that Preborn children in the womb are persons from the moment of their conception. Uh, they're not persons once they're born. Uh, they're persons from the moment that they're conceived. And so we should treat them with, with legal protection, uh, at least at the very least to the equal extent that we protect everybody else in society. Um, and so we need, I think that's, that's really f- foundational to this issue of abortion is that we're not talking about a clump of cells. We know that. Scientifically, we know that babies in the womb from the moment of conception are distinct persons. Science backs that up. We'll, I'll share uh, in a moment why that is. Um, we know that, but, it, but it's really not an argument of whether, you know, abortion is never really an argument about the personhood of the baby. It's just not the consideration. It, it's placing the, the value of the, the mother or the father or whoever else is involved in this above the personhood of the baby in the womb. And that's, that's the problem. So the scriptures affirm the unique personhood of this baby in the womb. Science also affirms it. Uh, so just basic science here. Human beings possess 46 chromosomes. That's what makes a person a person. Uh, we know that the male sperm contains 23 and the female's egg contains 23. So you put those together from the moment of conception, you have a full person. Um, they're not fully developed. They're not able to live outside of the womb for, for a number of months after that, that moment. Uh, but the moment of conception combines these chromosomes to create a distinct human being. And so even though uh, they are uh, you know, dependent on their mother for uh, the, the first number of months, um, it doesn't change their personhood. So, but obviously not, not everybody is convinced by that argument, right? That's... That's really not even the main argument in, in when, you're, when you're talking about somebody who's pro-choice versus pro-life. Um, pro-choicers generally don't really care that much about that part of the argument. What they're concerned about is um, the, the, the good of the mother as they frame it. And so how can we, if we're, if we're pro-life, as we should be, I, I believe, um, how can we argue this point with someone? How can we discuss this and, and help to 
help people to understand uh, this, this issue. Well, the first one, I don't give a lot of hope for it, but you can try to use logic. Um, there's not a lot of logic in the world anymore. So, and that's been true for a long time. C.S. Lewis bemoaned the, the loss of logic in, in children. So it happens, but you can try. And, and one of the things that, there's, a, there's just a really basic logical question that you can ask. Uh, the, the, the vast majority of people, the vast majority, only crazy psychotic people really think that you can kill a baby a minute before it's born. Almost nobody holds that position anymore. There's a few. There are some. Uh, but most people would say, no, 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 you should not, you know, one minute before birth is not an appropriate uh, time to end the pregnancy. So then you can just simply go, well, what about a minute before that? And what about a minute before that? At, at what point, as you move the minutes down, uh, does that child stop being that child? Right? So if you can start with kind of a common ground of, hey, is it appropriate to kill a baby a minute before it's born? And if they say no, then we can just kind of start working logically back from that. They won't have an answer for this, um, probably. And the reality is you can go all the way back, minute by minute, all the way to the conception of the baby, and it would still be a distinct person. So that's one thing. It's not probably the most effective in our society one of the ways that has been very effective is, um, secondly, through ultrasound images. Um, this has been an amazing thing, actually. Uh, modern ultrasound technology has done probably more for the, for the pro-life cause than a- anything else um, in terms of helping women particularly and, and to be potential to be fathers, uh, the ability to see within the womb, that the, that the child in, in there is actually a child. Um, we all know, if you've, if you've ever seen an ultrasound picture, I'm sure you have, if you have relatives that have had babies, if you've had babies, you know ultrasound pictures, even the most primitive ultrasound pictures, you, you look at and you go, well, that's a baby. You know, and now, of course, they've got the 3D ones. They've got some that are even more detailed. But they're... There, there's babies. Like, we know that they're a baby. People put it up on their, their refrigerator, and they're proud of that if they're, if they're happy about the pregnancy. But it's been an amazing thing that ultrasound technology has been used um, with great effect to change people's minds um, on this issue. Now, not entirely, of course. There are, there are exceptions, but, um, but it's, you know, as, as pro-life centers or um, crisis pregnancy centers have utilized these ultrasounds to help women in crisis see what's happening within their womb. Uh, it, it's changed a lot of hearts and minds on it, and that's a, that's a great thing. Um, those who reject the biblical testimony and the scientific evidence that uh, preborn children should be treated as persons from the moment of conception, they present a number of arguments for their, for their um, permissibility of abortion. I want to walk through just basically the, the primary arguments on the pro-choice side of it um, so that we can understand the argument and then we can counter the argument. Um, so one of, the, one of the arguments is that the baby in the womb or the, the fetus in the womb, as they'll, they'll usually say, uh, is unable to interact with others or survive on its own. Okay, so... Basically, what that means is that because the child is dependent on their mother and can't survive without her, 
the baby's not fully a person somehow, weirdly. I, I don't really get quite the, the logic there, but, but they're basically saying that if the baby can't survive on its own, then there's, no, there's nothing wrong with ending the pregnancy. But that doesn't actually change the fact of personhood, right? That, like, a newborn is still unable to talk or perform moral actions, right? So a baby, as soon as it's born, like, babies are not born with this sudden ability to, to communicate well, uh, to not be dependent on their parents for survival. Um, this is true for people in comas, uh, this is true for, um, you know, for all kinds of situations where somebody is not able to physically uh, interact with society or care for themselves on their own. That doesn't change their personhood, right? And, of course, you know, most junior high students aren't unable, are unable to survive, too. So this is all kind of the thing, right? The, the, the objection is not really persuasive um, that, well, because the baby can't survive, uh, it's not a person, and therefore it doesn't um, deserve, it doesn't you know it's not inherently um, needing life if you don't want it, and and that's just like these things just don't add add up because there's lots of scenarios where babies as soon as they're born are still in that same situation. So that argument would lead to infanticide, uh, which of course some some people would argue is fine too, which is crazy, but not very many. That's a pretty pretty minor population group. Um, second, a second argument again, or for abortion would be birth defects. So another objection concerning unborn children who are uh, known to have birth defects. Uh, the question is, should parents have the right to abort these children? Because that'll save them hardship and sparing the child from a life of suffering. Um, it's always framed in a very, like, oh, wouldn't it just be better for the baby who's got all these problems to not be alive? It's like, okay, um, but if, if a baby is born and has these problems, like if bef- prior to knowing, having that technology to see inside the womb and understand there's a birth defect, if the baby's born with a birth defect, are you, are you just going to go, yeah, we can kill that baby now too? Like that's, most civilized human beings are not going to go there. Now, lots of, lots of societies like the Roman Empire, that was how, they handled things because they didn't have the, the medical technology to know what was what. So if the baby came out in a way they weren't happy with, they'd just dump it uh, literally in the garbage dump. And, um, and th- there's a long history of that uh, kind of thing. But this is not an argument uh, that we can embrace. We've already established that unborn children should be treated as a person from the moment of conception. So being born or not yet born makes no difference on the issue of personhood. So unless we think it's okay to kill the child after it's born, we shouldn't think it's right to kill the child before it's born. Um, and we're, I have a little slide here on infanticide. And yeah, that is, um, that is a pretty rare perspective, but it is a perspective that some people would hold, although very few would, would like to think that children are being killed after they're born they are, in some cases, or being let to die in other cases. Um, but infanticide really is the logical conclusion of abortion. If you carry abortion all the way to its logical conclusion, then all bets are off. Uh, and, and we can really kill, kill any, anyone, any human being at that point. 
Uh, here's another uh, common argument. Pregnancies resulting from rape or incest. So this is one that uh, you, always, you always hear when you, when you have pro-life um, states or senators or whoever, they'll say, well, we want to ban abortions except in the case of rape or incest. There's always that, that caveat in there. Um, is that okay? Well, let's talk about it. Um, so if a child's conceived through this kind of violence of rape or incest, um, we have to recognize the tragedy of that. We have to recognize the pain of that, the hardship that the mother experienced. She's not voluntarily pregnant in this case. And if it's the case of incest, it could be a pregnancy at a very young age. Um, that is terrible. And we, we, just, we have to own that, right? Um, Christians who know about these situations, if we're familiar with people who are in this situation, we should step in and give the encouragement, support in whatever way we can. But we also need to recognize that this is a very, very small number of abortions through this, through this reality. It's extremely rare. It's uh, probably less than 1%, but at the very most, 1% of abortions are, are done through, are done because of rape or incest. So it's a very, very small percentage. The vast majority, 99 plus percent of abortions are not because a woman was raped or a victim of incest. However, the question still remains. Um, and this is the question, this is the logical question. Why should the child, who is a distinct person, be destroyed for the sins of the father? Is there, is there something that actually leads to that? And we know that mothers, the mother in this case is going to live with the trauma of what happened to her. We know that there's going to need to be healing and help for her. But is the kid, the child, is, is that boy or girl uh, needing to die because the father sinned? Wouldn't it be better to hold the father accountable and bring him to justice? Again, are we siding with the victims or the criminals? Right? And we should side with the victims. And the baby is going to be a victim in this as well. Uh, and the reality is, is that adoption is an option in this case. No one's going to be cruel enough to say to a mother in this situation, you have to raise that child yourself. It's your, you have to do it. Like, that may not be the best thing for the mother, but killing the baby is not the solution. Um, it, it's, it's just not. And I know it's a, ten, it's a very tender subject because it's a, it's a terrible scenario that nobody wants to ever uh, fathom could, could happen. And of course it does, but it's extremely rare, extremely rare. Um, and, and when it does happen, I, I, just, I just don't understand the, the mentality of if we're consistent people, if we're consistently believing that the baby in the womb is a unique person, if we're operating out of that reality, uh, then we have to ask ourselves deeper questions like, does that, did that person warrant the death penalty just based off how they were conceived? Does the father deserve the death penalty? Probably. Like, right? I mean, we, can, we could talk about that. The Old Testament law had, had that be a, de- a penalty of death as well. But listen, that, I just don't know that we can make the argument logically that the baby should be punished over the, over the man who, who committed the crime and the sin. Okay, so there's that. And maybe that's a controversial one, and you can, you can differ with me on this. It's okay, but that's my, 
my take on that. Um, the, the last one here is abortion to save the life of the mother. So this is something that's interesting. According to the CDC, and this was a kind of an older, older point of data, but the CDC, Center for Disease Control, uh, says that abortions carried out to save the life of the mother is fewer than 0.118% of all abortions. So not even close to 1%. A more recent study from the United Kingdom found that it was 0.0006% of abortions were done to save the life of the mother. Okay, so by our own CDC, by the National Health Institute or whatever is over in the UK, by these, these government officials, which are, who are probably, honestly, inflating these numbers somewhat, right? And they, they usually do. Um, the fact that they, these are probably still inflated numbers and they're still this small uh, is remarkable. That it, it basically almost never happens, um, statistically. But I do think that this situation is different from the other ones we've looked at. Because the choice here would be between the loss of one life or the loss of two lives. And if that's the genuine choice, then I think this is what we need to do. We need to, um, to do what's morally right. We need to save the life that can be saved in this situation. So if the life that can be saved is the mother's life, then we should save the mother. If we can save both lives, that's the best option, of course. If we can only save the baby and the mother is just doomed to die, uh, then, then we should save the baby's life, right? And so in most cases, um, it's, of course, saving the mother's life because the mother, uh, the baby typically is going to be at a point of development where he or she could not survive outside the womb. So in, in situations that are very rare, like fallopian tube uh, uh, pregnancies or ectoptic pregnancies, excuse me, um, then then, of course, we need to do what we have to do to save the life of the mother in those cases. We have the medical ability to intervene there. Um, it's always tragic. It's always sad. Um, we shouldn't rejoice in it. Uh, but if the choice is between two dead people or a living person, then we, we need to make the moral choice to save the life that can be saved uh, in that situation. So... I do think that it, this situation can be morally justified, is morally justifiable. Um, and again, it's important to know that this is a, such an extraordinarily rare situation that um, it's almost statistically like non-existent. So that's the other thing that people will always throw out is, well, we have to have abortion to save the life of the mother. Well, we're always going to have the procedures that can save the life of the mother. Like, no one's going to outlaw that. Uh, what we're talking about when we're banning abortions or legislating against abortions, we're talking about these, these just convenience abortions, these, these abortions of, well, I just don't want to have this baby. Well, that's not a good reason to kill a child. So in the case of the mother uh, dying from the pregnancy, it's acceptable um, still tragic, of course, but we live in a fallen world and bad things do happen and, and not everybody lives. Um, but, but we don't have to deliberately destroy life just for convenience. And that's where we're at as a society in the Western world. Um, 
there's two books on this I'd recommend you read at some point if you're interested in more of this. Um, one is pretty old. The other is brand new. Um, just came out this, this past month. Uh, the, the Story of Abortion in America is the brand new one. Um, Crossway publishes it. Actually, Crossway publishes both of these. Um, the Story of Abortion in America is a fascinating history of the subject. Uh, they basically look at the issue of abortion from um, a street level. So they, they look at like individual stories of abortion and, and what led to those situations from the year 1652 to 2022. And so I, I worked through that. Uh, I read that book over the last couple of weeks, and it was fascinating. It was a fascinating read. It's well-written. It's engaging. Um, but if you're just interested in like kind of the big story arc of how abortion got to where it is in our country, um, that's a great read. That's not going to give you a lot of the, the moral side of it. It's going to give you more. It's, it's written by Christians who are pro-life and they have their perspectives, but uh, it's not as much about making arguments for or against as much as just telling the story. So that might be one. The other one, though, is um, called uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race by Francis Schaeffer. Um, that one was written in 1976 or 9, something like that. I think 1979. Um, so it's it's a bit older, um, kind of was was his. If you've never heard of Francis Schaeffer, he was one of the great uh, intellectual thinkers of of in Christianity uh, in the 20th century. Died in 1984, but he was very passionate about um, this issue, and so he wrote a book on um, what happened to the human race. Like, how have we gotten to this place where we're just slaughtering innocent children? Um, in the womb. So that's a good book, uh, more on a theological level, a philosophical level. So depending on what your, what your preference is there, those are good, good reads. Okay, um, next issue that we want to discuss here is euthanasia. So euthanasia is basically on the opposite end of the abortion issue. Abortion happens before the baby's born. Euthanasia generally is going to happen uh, towards the end of life. Um, but the word euthanasia is derived from the Greek words you, meaning good, and thanatos, meaning death. And so it, you put it together and it means good death. Um, that is a misleading statement, but that is, what it, that is where it comes from. Um, sometimes we call this procedure uh, mercy killing. Um, and, and the idea here is that we're, we're ending someone's life generally towards the end of their life to ease their pain and suffering. And so euthanasia is simply the act of intentionally ending the life of a person who is either elderly, terminally ill, or suffering from some incurable injury or disease. Uh, this is uh, one that, again, is kind of one of these logical conclusions to the abortion issue. But largely, America has not embraced this there are some states that have legalized it. Uh, I believe Oregon and Washington State have. Probably California. I don't actually don't know that for certain. Uh, but those kind of northwestern states that are pretty, pretty liberal up there, they've done so. Canada, I think, just recently in the last couple of years, have passed um, a national law of permitting this. So it is. It's coming down the pipe, and it'll it'll be an issue here sooner than later. Um, so we need to discuss what, what we do in this. 
Um, the issue uh, often comes in focus in the case of a terminally ill patient or someone experiencing chronic pain and uh, therefore don't want to live anymore, right? They, they may even want to be put to death instead of suffering slowly. Um, it's also a question that comes up in the case of people who have lost a lot of their mental capacity, whether that's a coma or severe dementia, um, or or with patients who appear to have no reasonable human hope of recovery from a severe illness or injury. So the question we'll try to tackle tonight is, what's the morally right thing to do in these cases? Well, I think the sixth commandment applies to um, all human beings that are created in the image of God. So it doesn't say you shall not murder except when a person is more than 80 or 90 years old. It doesn't say you shall not murder except when a very ill person wants to be murdered. Um, it says you shall not murder. And so this command against murder prohibits abortion in the early stages of human life. It also prohibits murder on the late stages of human life. And so I, I just don't think that there's a place for Christians to embrace this idea. Uh, the word translated as murder refers to both premeditated murder, which is what's communicated in that English word we use, but it also refers, as I said at the beginning, to accidentally causing a person's death through negligence or carelessness. Uh, so the term is always applied to the murder of human beings. It's not applied to animals. Um, but uh, this, this command prohibits taking human life of another person, even if that person is elderly, terminally ill, in great pain, or, or lacks mental capacity or any other number of things that we may try to justify here. So I just don't, I don't think uh, on kind of the short end of this, I, I just don't think we uh, can embrace this as a, as a thing. Uh, the reality is, is, like a lot of this argument comes down to, well, people just don't want to suffer. And, and that, I think, I, I mean, I get that. Like, I wouldn't want to suffer slowly either. Like, who, who would? But, like, it's, a, it's rooted in a bad theology. It's rooted in a theology of comfort as the greatest good. And the Bible says it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And some of those tribulations for some of us will involve a slow, painful death. And that's terrible, tragic. Um, we, we can pray for God's mercy to free us from that. We can pray that he would let us pass away um, quickly. We can ask him for help in that. But, but to take matters into our own hands or for doctors or family members to take matters in their own hands, I don't think is an appropriate uh, way to apply this commandment in life. That being said, um, there is a crucial difference between killing and letting someone die. So killing is actively doing something to a patient that hastens or causes his or her, her death. Okay, so giving uh, an overdose of medication, um, suffocating or doing something violent, right? That's, that's what killing involves. On the other hand, letting someone die is passively allowing someone to die from other causes, natural causes, uh, without interfering in that process. So in the first case, the cause of death is the action taken by another person. The second case, the, the cause of death is the disease itself, the injury or the aging process that has already been occurring in the person who dies. Um, one of the things we, we need to 
see, and again, we, we're living in a time where we just don't want to accept that death is a thing for some weird reason. Like we've, we've gotten to a point where we, I think we're so comfortable with the medical technology and we can see so much life-saving intervention. And a lot of that I, sh- I, I praise God for. I mean, I'm glad we live when we do. And uh, if I have to get a tooth yanked out, I don't have to just, you know, take a shot of whiskey and hope for the best, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just grateful for the fact that we live in the time we live. Um, the vast majority of humanity hasn't lived in this kind of uh, comfort. But as a result, I think a lot of people have just this deep and abiding fear of death and <coughs> particularly pain in death. And so the, the, it's very, this is a very attractive idea to those who under, don't understand that God takes us to himself through a variety of ways. Um, and some of those can be painful ways. So the Bible prohibits actively killing someone, but it, it doesn't prohibit letting someone die from the, the natural course of, of, the, uh, of the disease or the, or the injury. Um, so, but sometimes this can be a complex issue. Um, so sometimes it's clearly wrong to let a person die, right? So we're distinguishing between killing and letting someone die. That's a little more complicated than just that, right? Because we, we know that there are times when it's wrong for us to let someone die if we have the ability to intervene. And, and in most cases, we should intervene and try to help the person recover, um, not just stand by and let the person die. If it, and there's a couple of ways that we can think about this. One is, uh, is there a reasonable human hope of recovery? So as, does the person have a a probable likelihood that they can continue living on after this injury or illness? And two, are we actually able to help? So, so not all of us are going to be in a position to help everybody if we don't have the ability. But if those two things are there, if there's a reasonable human hope of recovery and we have the ability to help, uh, then I think in that case we should, and, we're, and as we do, we're, we're actually uh, following Jesus' command on loving our neighbor as ourself. Um, Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do the same to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We also see Jesus condemn in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite who neglected to do what they could to help the injured Samaritan on the side of the road. There's an, uh, excuse me, the, the injured man, the Samaritan is the one who stopped and helped. Um, and so Jesus was making the point that your neighbor is basically anybody that you are in front of at that moment and if we have an obligation to love our neighbor, uh, then we should, then we should uh, do that. If we have the ability and there's reasonable uh, uh, cause for hope of recovery. But on the other hand, it, in cases where there is no reasonable hope of recovery, uh, sometimes the situation is called futility, and uh, and or uh, it is the patient's wish to be allowed to die. So if they sign a do not resuscitate order. Uh, and they don't, they don't want to have medical intervention keep them alive. Or if we're unable to help, such as when a person is trapped in a burning car or, uh, or even if the expense of medical treatments is more than anybody can afford, then those situations, while that's nuanced and we can discuss like the particulars in individual cases, that it may be right to allow a person to die in those scenarios. Uh, but that's morally distinct from actively murdering someone. So allowing someone to die may include not starting a medical life support system or stopping a life support system. 
Um, so if the person is dependent to live on these machines because of these machines, then it, it may be uh, permissible and probably is permissible after some time uh, to either not start those or to stop those and allow the person to go naturally. Um, but because people today have such this, they harbor this super deep fear of death, um, we don't, people don't really want to talk about this stuff. And But as Christians, we we don't need to be afraid of death. We have Jesus who conquered the grave and, and has defeated our, our enemy. Though we will go through death physically, we won't ever experience it um, spiritually. And so we have a, we have hope in that. So that's the, that's the issue of uh, euthanasia. Uh, um, basically the other end of the abortion issue. And it boils down to the humanity of the person ultimately. Okay. One more to talk about tonight and then we'll uh, stop and take questions if there are any. Uh, one, I'm putting this one in here because I think it fits the best with this command. Uh, and that is racism. Um, so here's where the logical thought is on this. Um, racism is not a, a in, inherently a physical murdering of someone, although it can certainly lead to that in, in some cases. Um, but Jesus actually tells us that the heart of this commandment is about our heart towards other people. And it's actually a prohibition against hating one another. So murder is basically the outflow of, of hatred uh, towards another human being on, on its most basic level. So it's appropriate for us to discuss the issue of racism and, and race relationships uh, because there, there is at times a lot of animosity towards people of different ethnicities, races. Um, and, and I think that that does come back to the, the sixth commandment at, at the heart of it. Um, one thing we need to recognize here is that racism is not a new problem. It's not just an American problem. It's a universal problem. Okay, and Jesus dealt with it in his own day. Uh, there was a lot of racial discrimination against the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Um, there was obviously a lot of animosity from Gentiles towards the Jews. Um, it's not just a skin color problem. It, it, it is, it's a broad problem across basically all civilizations in all times. Um, so, so what does the Bible speak to on this issue? Speak to us on this issue? Well. Number one, all people on earth are descended, descended from Adam and Eve. The, this is a really important point that we need to get to because the doctrinal importance of human beings uh, shows the, the unity ultimately of the human race, physically and otherwise. So it, it, it shows that uh, all of us stem from Adam. Adam is the representative of all people. And Christ, who is in the New Testament described as the second Adam, uh, is also able to then represent all people from all backgrounds and all places. So Adam, uh, you know, the, the Bible says, in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is the representative of the human race as all stem from him. Jesus Christ is the representative of the human race as we come to him. Uh, and so uh, Acts 17.26 says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. So from one man, that's Adam, all of the nations of mankind live on the earth. 
Secondly, all people share equally in being created in the image of God. Uh, this affirmation that all people are still in, made in the image of God is the general principle that shows the deep moral evil of murder and, um, and ultimately the deep moral evil of racism. So in the New Testament, Jesus, James rather, affirms a similar idea. He speaks uh, of people being made in the likeness or the image of God. But he also cautions in that, that we are not to show partiality, which is to favor one kind of person over another. Now, it's fair in context. He's not talking about races. He's talking about the rich and the poor. But the principle that he draws out of this of partiality is, is, is applicable across the board of showing favoritism towards one person over another for really any particular reason uh, is, is actually a, a violation of the image of God. Uh, James writes, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. John Frame explains about this, that James also opposes partiality. Um, partiality is the biblical term for prejudice. It involves treating someone badly, not because the person deserves it, but because of an irrational preference. So, so while um, James's issue isn't linked directly to the race issue, um, we, we, can, we see that the issue of partiality or prejudice is rooted in that, and it can come in different forms. We also see in the scriptures that people of every racial background will be united in heaven uh, as they embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, those who do. Right? The, if we skip to the end of the Bible, we see that the um, emphasis on racial or ethnic unity is, is clearly there. Um, people from every tribe, nation, language uh, are gathered around the throne in Revelation 9. Uh, 7, 9, and 10. So we, we see that God is redeeming a world, uh, a, a, a church of people from across the world of all backgrounds. And so it would be illogical for us to be against people of other backgrounds if they're going to be united with us in Christ. Um, this is outside of uh, the, the scriptural evidence, but there is genetic evidence that shows the unity of the human race. Uh, the ESV Study Bible talks about this. There's a little article about it uh, in the back of it. And it says, recent gen uh, genetic studies from the Human Genome Project uh, gives uh, interesting confirmation to the very large degree of genetic similarity shared by all human beings and the extremely small degree of genetic dissimilarities distinguishing one group from another. The best contemporary science shows that the human genome sequence is almost 99.9% exactly the same in all people. So uh, all people, regardless of skin color, regardless of where they, grew, where they live on the earth, um, genetically are 99.9% uh, similar. So, so that just shows the unity of the human race in that so again, illogical to hate people from other places. Um, and, we, and then we should, sh uh, or here's the question, how should we relate to people from different racial backgrounds? Well, that's where things get complicated, right? Because we are, uh, I don't know that people necessarily, at least not in the church, 
are actively against someone purely on skin color. That may be for, for some and certainly in times past. But I think now the problem really comes down to cultural differences um, and how people you know, relate to things and how they prefer to worship and those different things. So, so how should we treat people? Well, I mean, this is just basic, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, um, treat them as a human being because they are. Um, care about them as a person. We, don't, don't be antagonistic just because you have differences. Um, you know, try to find unity. Uh, those, those, all those basic things. Like, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. It's just applying the principles of Scripture to relationships. How, how should the local church display uh, the unity and diversity of the Bible? And so this is a discussion that happens a lot in more multicultural areas of the world. Where does, should the church, does the church have an obligation to be racially diverse um, versus being, you know, more monolithic in their, in, in their community. Um, my answer to this is that a local church should ideally look like the community that it's in. Um, so if a church is located in a really racially diverse area, then you would hope that that church would draw people from racially diverse backgrounds to worship together. Now, again, we got, you got to kind of overcome some of the cultural differences and some of the preferences and that's, that's hard work uh, for church leaders to engage in. But, um, but if a church is in a really homogenous area, uh, kind of like ours, right? we're, we're, general, we're not seeing a ton of diversity here. There are some, but not a, not a ridiculous amount. Um, it's, it's kind of unreasonable to expect a church to have massive levels of diversity if there's no diversity uh, in the community, right? And so although there is different forms of diversity, it's not just racism, uh, racial diversity, it could be um, uh, economic diversity, it could be all kinds of things. And churches should be as diverse as the places that they live, um, ideally. And then um, I, think, I think ultimately uh, the problem with all of this, not just racism, I mean, I'm talking about going, kind of going back to everything we've just said uh, and looked at. The, the ultimate problem with all of this, from racism down to abortion to everything else in between, uh, is that Western society has largely moved away from a world, uh, biblical worldview to a humanistic worldview. The, the, there's been a steady shift in, in thinking over the course of probably 500 years um, where gradually the the worldview of the people who live in Western culture uh, have not, have no longer embraced the biblical uh, teaching that men and women are made in the image of God and therefore have unique, uh, uh, yeah, un- unique uh, dignity in that role. Um, and what it's been traded for is something called humanism. Humanism uh, basically is defined as a system of thought that attaches prime importance to human rather than divine matters. So humanists will stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, uh, emphasizing common human needs and seeking to uh, solely rational ways of solving human problems. Humanism centers on the notion that the rational, autonomous self uh, and ignore the spiritual nature of the individual. So humanism basically has replaced the biblical worldview largely. Of course, there are still many Christians in, in the Western world who 
don't embrace humanism, who, uh, but there, there's basically a starting point where the Christian worldview starts with God and then comes down to us. Humanism starts with us and it just stays there. It's just, in, it's just from within ourselves. And so if you have a worldview where it's, it's all about you, this autonomous, rational person who, who doesn't have to be accountable to a higher being, then everything's kind of off the table, right? It, it just sort of leads to this shift in understanding. Um, when a person or a culture shifts from a God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview, then utilitarian ethics, which three weeks ago when we talked about the different forms of ethics, utilitarianism is the belief that what's best for the biggest number of people is what's best. Well, if, you're, if your starting point is a human-centered, man-centered worldview, then utilitarianism is the natural co- outcome of that. That's what rules the day, um, which then ultimately leads to the abuse of other people because it, it leads to saying, well, this group, whatever this group is defined as, uh, are holding us back. So if that's in, in like... And again, nobody really articulates it the way I'm articulating it necessarily, but you could say, well, these unborn children are a, are a drain on society. They're going to cost so much money. They're going to be an undue burden on the mothers. So let's just get rid of them because that's the greater good for the people who are here and alive right now. Or, or, you, can, or you can go to examples from communism. Communistic countries are humanistic in their philosophy. Fundamentally, they're not... That's the only way communism survives is to take God out of the whole thing. And so every communistic society is a humanistic society. And that's what has led to so many uh, abuses of power because they'll say, well, this group of people, whether it be you know, uh, the Uyghur Muslims in, in China or whatever, they're a drain, they're, they're bad, they're not helping. So let's just hurt them, harm them, enslave them. Whatever, and so utilitarianism, the 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 evil that can flow through a utilitarian ethic is is pretty intense. But it boils down to a a worldview, and I think that's one of the things that we've got to reckon with is is our worldview Christian, starting with God and working out from there, or is it starting from us and working out from there? And 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 I'm very convinced that only a only a god-centered christian worldview is going to lead to the thriving of a society and we talked about that a little bit last week when we when we concluded with the things that that christians have done to influence human governments over all these years um and there's there's a massive list of things that christians have have done to bring a better life to society um that we are just kind of gradually seeing erode now from our uh, from our world because people have largely rejected that worldview. So the, but the question is, is what, do, what do we do about that? Well, we do the same thing we always do. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and we, we ask for God to bring people to himself. And then we teach and train and uh, help people learn what, what that means to live, live out the Christian life as God enables us. We, we don't have to fundamentally change all of culture that is an insurmountable thing to shoot for but what we can do is we can work towards seeing individual people change 
uh, whether that be through our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, whoever God has put into our lives, and um, and loving them and helping them meet Jesus, and that that's really it's a slow, that's going to be a slow thing. It's not going to happen overnight. But the only way to turn turn the tide on humanism is to keep pressing Jesus into people's hearts through preaching the gospel and, and loving one another. So that's my help. That's my uh, solution there. It's, it's going to take a long time, but it, it, can, it can be done. And one of the things, just to give you some hope in that, is um, that this has happened many, many times uh, throughout human history. So uh, Francis Schaeffer, the guy who wrote that one book I re- referenced, wrote another book in the, in the late 70s called uh, How Shall We Now Live?, or how shall we then live? Actually, is the title of it, and and he basically walks through the rise and fall of Western thought in that from from the Romans all the way through his modern day, which is forty fifty years from where we sit. Um, but he basically just tracks how humanism has kind of ebbed and flowed and have gone by different names throughout history. But God will God is faithful to bring about uh, a change. He's done that through. Uh, the the rise of the church in the in the you know early or the early 300s through the Roman Empire then there was a decline and then there was a resurgence of that of of that in the mid in the uh, Reformation and now there's a decline and there's we're just bound for another rebound it's just it's going to happen at some point hopefully we'll live to see it who knows but but God is faithful to keep uh, his church moving forward even if uh, the progress seems slow. So don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Uh, God is sovereign and he's in control. But, uh, but we're just living in kind of a crazy time right now. And there's nothing we can really do to change that other than uh, keep pressing on with what Jesus calls us to do. So there you go. That's my two cents. Any questions on that uh, or anything that we've talked about? And if not, we'll pray and head on out. I know we just drank from a fire hose, so sorry about that. But so everybody was just wondering what you did with uh, numbers thirty-five. Numbers thirty-five. What did I do with that? So why did God put in uh, cities of refuge after He said, "Oh, not murder"? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, cities of refuge. That's an interesting one because, mm-hmm. um, so so God was building in a system where retribution wasn't just immediately going to happen. So if somebody killed somebody either by accident or negligence or, or by self-defense, potentially that family, their family members could seek retribution on that person. And so the cities of refuge were created as a place for that person to flee to while the, while the assessment was happening of what actually happened. And, let's, and maybe that person's going to be brought to justice and maybe not. Maybe that they'll be found not guilty. But it was basically a way to protect society. The the, the individual who did kill somebody, whether in, intentionally or not, gave them time to to not just be immediately slaughtered by the uh, individual brother or the, dad. The Avenger of Blood, mm-hmm. as it's called, would not be held guilty if he killed him. Even if he if caught he, him, yeah. That's, even, yeah. If he was, even if he was given refuge in the city, mm. and he caught him outside of that city area, yeah. um, it, it's just been something that's been going through my mind. Yeah, yeah I, had, I need to do some, some reading on that a little more probably. 
but that is an interesting subject. It takes, it takes us outside of the bounds of yeah. today's laws. Right. And I would and I would just say generally speaking it's that's still rooted in the in the Mosaic law which we're not under anymore. So that's why I kind of spent most of the time on on that Genesis 9 passage because that's that's pretty much like the universal standard for all humanity for all time. Um, so I think when we discuss like the, the specifics of the Mosaic law, um, there may be things we can glean from that and learn from that and apply, but, but we're not obligated by those things anymore either. So. No, but it does. For me, it's been interesting to consider how God may be looking at it mm-hmm. in spite of what our laws are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Something to I, I I really do I do I'm, now you've piqued my interest because I do want to kind of dig into that a little more so I probably will um, that's good any other thoughts okay all right let's uh, let me pray and then we'll head out uh, God again thank you for being um, the God that you are that you have revealed yourself to us that you have made every one of us in this room and everyone in this world. Um, in your image, we pray that our hearts would be uh, committed to the dignity and value of of life of of our own and and others. And we pray for um, yeah, just for our hearts as we head home tonight that we would be uh, drawn to you through all these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen.